to Scoop and Scale, where we dish up the science and weigh facts about mostly equine nutrition. I'm Michelle Anderson. I spent two decades working in equine media, and I currently create content and help veterinarians and businesses connect with horse owners through my consulting business, Cadence Marketing and Media. I'm a trail rider, dressage rider, and an at-home horse keeper. And I'm equine nutrition consultant, Dr. Claire Tunis of Clarity Equine Nutrition. I develop diet plans for horses ranging from metabolic seniors to Olympic athletes. I also consult for equine nutrition companies. I'm a scientist, dressage rider, and a pony club mom. Claire and I collaborated for years when I was the editor of an equine publication, and she was one of our regular contributors. We'd finished work, but we always had more to talk about. New products, new research, and our own horses. This podcast is an extension of those conversations. It's for anyone who wants to make better choices when it comes to feeding and caring for their own horses. And before we get started, a quick disclaimer. The information in this podcast is general and not meant to replace the individualized advice of your own qualified equine nutritionist or veterinarian. While I have a PhD in nutrition, I'm not a veterinarian and can't give medical advice. With that, thank you for joining us and we hope you enjoy the following episode. In this episode, we're talking about supplements. When it comes to horses, there seems to be a supplement for everything. And once you head down the supplement rabbit hole, the daily costs can add up quickly. I know because I've been there. So we should definitely discuss supplements as a part of our equine nutrition basics series. I would agree. I see lots of people feeding supplements. I have lists of supplements it's always quite amazing and I'm always asking clients you know so what was your motivation for feeding that supplement and there's often sort of a pause and a well I don't know I started it like two years ago like I always want to try and understand why people are feeding them you know yeah and I think that once you start one if things are going well there's always like that fear that if you stop that that is the magic ingredient that's making everything work Yes. Yeah. And here's my first tidbit. If you do add supplements, add them one at a time so that if it does work, you know which one it was that worked. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Yeah. So, so, uh, but, but what is a supplement and why might horses need one or maybe they need more or maybe they need 10? Maybe they don't need any. Oh, okay. So what are they? <laughs> So when I think about supplements, I think of, I think we're all familiar with like the USDA food pyramid. So if you think about the food pyramid for your horse, right, the bottom of your food pyramid is forage. That's the biggest chunk of that pyramid. The next level up might be a performance feed or a senior feed or if you're an easy keeper, just a ration balancer. And then supplements are that little tiny triangle on the top. So they really are like just sort of the little pieces on the top and they are meant to just as the word suggests right supplement things it's supposed to be sort of an addition not the sort of foundation of of your horse's diet so most times people are giving supplements because they have some kind of issue that they feel their supplement might help fix right so what are the most popular types of supplements that that horse owners give their their horses so I would say most of the time they're giving supplements that are what we would call health supplements, but there are also feed supplements. Um, so, and that's 
how they're categorized by certain regulatory agencies. So food supplements have ingredients in them that are deemed to be food ingredients and nutrients and required in the diet. So things like calcium, magnesium, zinc, you know, vitamin E, those kinds of things. Those are food supplements versus health supplements, which you're giving because you're trying to support some kind of the health of your horse. So those might be herbal things. They might be the confusing thing. And I struggle this as a nutritionist because, you know, you might be feeding zinc as a nutrition supplement because it's a required nutrient and part of the diet, but you also might be feeding zinc as a health supplement to help support immune function. So some things do double duty, but um, supplement manufacturers should have a very clear understanding of whether their product is actually a food supplement or a health supplement because that actually changes how they get labeled. Um, and so it's important for consumers to actually understand that and to understand the differences in, in labeling. So when you're looking at the supplements, then you're saying there's, there's health and nutrition supplements. But what kind of categories do they fall into as far as what they're supposed to do for the, the horse? Like, I know it seems like joint supplements are a big one. What, what are some others? Yeah, I feel like joint's a big one. Like gut health. Right. So you got all this pre, pro, postbiotic type products. That's a big one. Calming is a big one. Behavioral supplements, um, you know, electrolytes. That would be a food supplement because most of the things that are going into an electrolyte are actually nutrients, right? Sodium chloride, potassium, those kinds of things. Um, so that's an example, a good example of a food supplement. Um, you might have um, an omega fatty acid supplement. Um, again, that might be a food supplement because those omega fatty acids are actually uh, nutrients and you know known to have nutrient requirements so that would be a food supplement um, and then uh, you know, there's all your herbals botanicals right and so sometimes those fall into different things so things like red raspberry that's a botanical herbal but it's often in the calming or the moody mare category mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Um, that's an ingredient you'll often see um, puff Mm-hmm. That's a huge one. Skin yeah. and coat. Yeah. Um, and obviously the ingredients in skin and coat might be omega-3s. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's a lot of cross, you know, it's a lot of cat's duty sometimes too. Well, that's, and I was thinking like respiratory um, yeah. supplements and then, but that's a really good point. So the omegas are such a big part of this. Um, and our, in our last episode that we posted, we talked about salt and electrolytes, and but we had a, a side piece that we talked about flax and um, and then D, DHA and different forms of omega-3s. But omega-3s show up in a lot of different types of supplements. Why? Why do we see omega-3s in skin and coat and hoof and respiratory supplements and weight gain? Right. Well, so weight gain is because it's a fat, right? So it's a it's a a lot of calories. There's more calories in a gram of fat than there is in a gram of carbohydrate or a gram of protein. So that's why fat, no matter the type of fat, tend to be in weight gain products. Um, and obviously, we like omega threes because we think of them as being healthy because they help support an you know inflammatory response. Um, this is where you start getting into the linguistics and the language of things you can and can't say around supplements, right? Because it's very tempting to say that omega-3s are anti-inflammatory because that is sort of their action in the body is that they have sort of an anti-inflammatory effect in the body. However, 
supplement manufacturers cannot say that a supplement is anti-inflammatory because that's a treatment claim or a um, prevention claim. And so supplements, although they are maybe health related, and actually, interestingly, in the eyes of FDA, they are drugs. Uh, but they're not drugs in the way that you and I think of them. When I think of drug, I think pharmaceutical, right? I'm not thinking omega-3. But in the eyes of the FDA, there are different categories of drugs. And so pharmaceutical drugs are allowed to make cure, treat, prevent, mitigate claims because they've been through rigorous FDA you know, trials where they've proven that they actually do treat something or they do prevent something, whereas supplements haven't. And so supplements are only allowed to make what are called structure function claims, which is a different category of drugs. So they're allowed to make language like, um, you know, supports a healthy inflammatory response. They're not allowed to say that it's anti-inflammatory. <laughs> so, and is that strongly enforced? Like, is that really clear for the consumer? I don't know that it's really clear for the consumer. I don't know that the average consumer knows that they're technically not allowed to say those things. And, you know, perhaps enforcement isn't as strong as it should be. But certainly, you know, when I'm looking at supplements, it's a huge red flag to me. If I come across supplements that are just making, you know, reduces incidences of EIPH, right, which is bleeding into the lungs. That's a flat out drug claim. You cannot say that. Um you know, so those companies that are making those kinds of claims to me are showing that they haven't done their due diligence in learning how they're allowed to play in the space within the regulations. And so then that starts to make me wonder, well, what else are they not really educating themselves about? Or what else do they not know? And, and I, so I, you know, I generally don't recommend products that are making those kinds of statements or that are not following label requirements um, because I just, you know, I'd rather support the companies that are doing it right and being transparent with the customer and that kind of a thing. And so food in supplements, they have to label themselves like feeds. So they're governed by AFCO, which is the American Association of Feed Control Officials. And so they are required to have uh, a guaranteed analysis like you would have on a feed they're required to have an ingredient list that lists all of the ingredients in the product and they can have feeding directions. However, health supplements may not make any reference to feeding directions or you know top dress on food. They have to make dosage based instructions. So they might say administer 50 grams per day, right? That is a dosage instruction. It's not a feeding instruction. They don't have a guaranteed analysis. Instead, they have active and inactive ingredient lists. So you'll see your active ingredients, the things in the supplement that are supposedly the things that are doing something. And then you'll have your inactive ingredients. So going back to your omega-3 example, you might have an active ingredient where it says this product contains 10 grams of omega-3. That's the active ingredient. And then in the inactive ingredient, your inactive ingredient would be flax which is where that omega-3 is coming from, right? Uh, you might have an inactive ingredient of zinc and that might be all it says. It may not say where that zinc is coming from. It may not say if it's zinc sulfate, zinc proteinate, zinc methionine. It doesn't have to. The active ingredient is zinc. They don't have to say where it's coming from. 
So that's a big difference between the two uh, labeling, you know, things back and forth. So that's that's why you might see differences. So how do you know if a supplement has enough of an an ingredient to be effective? That's a really tricky one, right? And then consumers really have to educate themselves on knowing, you know, what the research says for various ingredients and going to the research and the literature and trying to find research studies on fair, you know, various ingredients to see, you know, what does the literature say, yeah. um, you know, needs to be in there because there is a lot of supplements out there, you know, omega-3 is a great, great case in point. You know, talking about EPA and DHA like we were uh, previously um, lots of supplements have 50 milligrams of DHA or 150 milligrams of EPA and you need gram quantities of those omega-3s to really be effective. So to your point that so many supplements have a lot of the same things in them, often they're in there, do what I kind of call tag dressing, like teeny weeny amounts. So you go, oh, great. Look, it's got EPA and DHA in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Not, not necessarily enough to really do anything. Yeah. And I, you know, you have to be careful of that zero placement when you're working with milligrams and grams. And um, yeah, I, I, well, you obviously grew up in England and I grew up here and we had this short amount of time where they tried to teach us the metric system (laughs) and failed. (laughs) And then it was given up on uh, when I was in grade school. Uh, But there was something where I was figuring out grams of something. um, And then I went, hey, wait a second. I'm actually, these are milligrams. This has like nothing near because I started going, this should be a lot more. Like I should be giving more volume to my horse if if that's the case. And then I finally figured it out. And I, right. it was milligrams, not grams. And I needed grams, not milligrams. So it was a fraction, you know. Right. Well, and it, it always tacks me up a little bit because like on joint supplements, you'll see glucosamine is nearly always given as, for example, 10,000 milligrams or 5,000 milligrams. Well, that's 10 grams. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. I don't just say 10 grams. Well, 10 grams. It doesn't grams seem like as much. Right. No, no, I won't. I want what I'm paying for. <laughs> Right. And so, you know, and so when you've got a big thing, it looks really impressive. It doesn't always look so impressive if it was, you know, a tiny thing, even in milligram. But again, you know, 150 milligrams looks better than 0.15, you know, grams. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, it, it's worth paying attention to the labels and, and, you know, getting off calculator, make sure, make sure you're doing your math right when you're, yeah, when you're doing this stuff. Yeah. And there's a lot of, you know, Google, you know, here I am sending people to Google, but there's lots of things, you know, especially Google Scholar. You know, if you go into Google Scholar and you put in like horse biotin or something, you know, it's going to pull up. Google Scholar is sort of their database of research articles. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might find, you know, quite easily a number of at least the abstracts um, for things. PubMed is the same. Um, you know, going in there and just putting in, you know, biotin horse or whatever, you'll pull up several papers and at least see the abstract at the bottom of the abstract, it should summarize the conclusion at least and and give you a kind of the whole abstract will give you a brief overview of what it was they did in the research trial, you know, what the results were and what their takeaway comments are. So you might, you know, at least, you know, get some sense of what was it they looked at. Okay, they they investigated feeding horses, you know, is there a difference between feeding 10, 20 and 30 milligrams of biotin to horses over a six month period? And then, you know, a quick summary of, you know, hoof shelliness or something. And that they found that there either what there was or there wasn't a significant difference between those, you know, three versus not feeding any at all or whatever. So then you can start going to your products and kind of saying, okay, well, you know, if the research says I need, you know, 
somewhere between this range and I've only got a fraction of that, this probably isn't the supplement that I want for this issue, you know? I think it's really important when people are looking at articles on on Google Scholar or PubMed to remember that it's not always going to be clear necessarily which companies were involved in the study or which specific product was involved because it, they usually are talking about ingredients and not a specific company or a specific product. So sometimes it can be a little difficult to suss out, especially if there's something that's um, a really great, you know, it had great results. Uh, it can be difficult to find like, well, what was that? Um, usually by the time it gets marketed, then, you know, someone will connect <laughs> the dots for you so that you can find oh, yeah. the one that you want. Um, but then there will be other supplements that are similar, you know, they'll and they'll reference the same research that maybe it wasn't their exact product. So I think it's always really important just to, you know, for the consumer to be aware of that. Yeah, that's a really good point. And and certainly if a company did have their product researched, they're very likely going to tell you all about it and mm-hmm. have, hopefully have links to the research papers on their website. If it went well. If it, if went, it went well. well. Yeah. <laughs> good point. Um, the other thing in the abstract, to your point, is it won't necessarily say who the sponsors were of the research. You'll get that in the in the big paper, but not necessarily you know, in the abstract. Um, but you might be able to get a sense based on where the authors are from you know, depending on how it was done. But um, yeah, that is a trick. And and it's tricky. I mean, I like to formulate products um, using research proven ingredients. And, you know, the end product that I formulated might not get researched, but hopefully, you know, the, the, but the ingredients I'm putting in it have hopefully been researched by the ingredient provider. Um, and so while that's not as good as having the final product researched, you know, it's, it's expensive doing research and a lot of, um, especially smaller supplement companies or feed companies can't really afford to be doing, you know, re- university trials and the like. And so at the very least, hopefully the ingredients have got some research behind them. Um, and that's, that's always helpful. Yeah. And is it true that it also matters how the ingredients are handled when the supplement's manufactured? Be. It can be some ingredients, like, for example, more heat sensitive or whatever. So, you know, they're not going to stand up to pelleting as well and that kind of thing. But again, if you've got a really good ingredient supplier, then they should have all that and, you know, hopefully have some of that information available on that ingredient and what its heat tolerances are and that kind of a thing. Um, but yeah, that's that's part of uh, that's part of formulation. We'll have, to, we'll have to do something about that at some point. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think it's uh, um, on the docket for the future. So um, how can a horse owner know? if a supplement is actually working? Like how quickly should they see results or does it depend? It depends, (laughs) right? It depends, depends, you know, what your reason for giving it was and what the issue is that you're hoping to see an improvement in, right? Like if I'm giving biotin for feet, right? The research shows that yes, you know, 15, 20 milligrams per day at a minimum of biotin can help with hoof hardness and prevention of, you know, shelly feet. Um, however, those research studies were like nine or 10 months long. So mm-hmm. think about how long it takes for a hoof to grow down. Mm-hmm. You're not going to N- see it. Nine to 10 months. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, by the time you see the chipping at the toe where it interacts with the ground, 
you know, it's going to take a long time for that hoof that you just influenced to get there. So whereas digestive tract products, you know, I would hope to see an effect in, you know, when I do some hind gut support type products, I'm hoping that someone will see an effect in, you know, maybe a week, 10 days. Um, I think joint supplements kind of similar if you're not seeing an improvement in a couple of weeks um, on the issue that motivated you to reach out and find one in the first place, um, then, um, you know, probably it's not the product for your horse. And it can be tricky because, again, you know, there's glucosamine, you know, and there's glucosamine, like they're different, like different manufacturers have slightly different twists on how they make that ingredient. So, you know, the glucosamine that you put in your supplement, Michelle, may not be the same as the glucosamine I put in my supplement, even though on the label it says both products have 10 grams of glucosamine. So it can be a matter of, you know, finding the products that, you know, work in your particular horse. Um, And I think that's definitely true also of like digestive support products. I have like a little toolkit with like, you know, like four or five products in that, you know, like a lot of horses with fecal water syndrome. Um, and so I'll have support products that I'll try and I sort of have this start with this one and if this one doesn't work then we'll go to this one which is a similar kind of product but a slightly different kind of yeast for example and it's just it can just be you know if you don't know exactly what the cause of the issue was trying to find the solution can take a bit of trial and error yeah so you mentioned fecal water syndrome yeah Um, so now you have to explain what that is (laughs) <laughs> so fecal water syndrome, I think of as being, uh, normally horses with fecal water syndrome have normal manure, but they're passing water after their manure. Um, you know, it's not diarrhea, although I think some people say that horses have fecal water syndrome and they actually have loose manure verging on diarrhea. Yeah. Um, but fecal water syndrome horses um, can have quite normal looking manure or just slightly soft, but they kind of have the dribbles mm-hmm. afterwards and it's literally liquid and it... Mm-hmm. It's annoying because it runs down their back legs and it's a mess. And, you know, you want to wash it off because it's all, you know, caked manure on their inside of their thighs and it's chaffing and on the back of their, you know, it can get, you know, hair will start coming off, that kind of a thing. And then you feel like you want to wash it off and then the constant washing makes them sore and, or it's minus 20 out because you live in, you know, Nebraska and you're (laughs) washing manure off your horse. So it's a, it's a it's a condition that I see a lot of and oftentimes the horse is seemingly very healthy and no. vets have often kind of a little bit tried everything they can think of and have kind of gone back to the owner and said, look, your horse is healthy, it's fine. You know, then the owner will come to me and say, but it's not. Please help. Please help. help. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm out here in January, minus 30, you know, trying to figure out how to wash my ear off my horse. Like... Maybe my horse is fine, but I'm not fine. Yeah, yeah. I had one in a therapy herd that I managed, and that's why we ended up with him. And he was wonderful, wonderful. But it's he had fecal water syndrome, and and so his owner wasn't able to sell him when she put him up oh, for sale. Wow. It's really obvious. Um, and it was poopsicles, you know. And we tried, we tried everything. So anyway, if you're dealing with that, we'll put that on the the topic list because I think yeah, you can go more in depth on that one because for that sure that one's a hard one. Yeah, um, and it especially when it's 15 degrees out and you have a a tail that's iced over so yeah um so on that note that's a tangent but (laughs) (laughs) so coming back to supplements i know i'm mostly a dressage rider um i i took this little amount of time where i i played with doing endurance for a little bit never made it 
very far, but far enough to, to know a little bit. 25 miles? No, <laughs> 20 miles because I took a wrong turn maybe on a 14-mile ride. Um, <laughs> you get close to 25 and you go, that's a long time to be in a saddle. Um, <laughs> but, Especially in your lots. <laughs> right. Um, anyway, but uh, so in endurance, MSM is, I believe, don't, and no one, no one, take my word for it. If you are an endurance rider, check with your governing body. But MSM, I was surprised to find that it's, uh, it was as it's not allowed if you're right. riding endurance. However, in dressage horses, it's in a lot of our joint supplements. And right. and as far as I know, USEF, it, it, MSM is approved. So how do you know what you can use and what you can't based on your discipline? If you're complaining. Yeah. I mean, that really, I think you said it. You have to go back to your governing body, right? And the rules change every year. Different things come and go. Um, so, yeah, it's really worth calling. I know with Yusuf, they're pretty easy to work with. You can phone them and ask them and, and they'll tell you. And some products is a flat out, no, you cannot show on this. And others, it's a, well, you need to take it away X amount of days before, you know, show. And, and I mean, the big ones that come to mind, obviously, are the calming supplements. Um, I think it actually says in the rule book that it's sort of not really sport, good sportsmanly conduct to be feeding your horse a, you know, a supplement that's a, you know, with the goal of changing its behavior. It's not really within the, you know, what we want from good sportsmen. But, you know, at the, at the end of the day, there's tons of people out there feeding magnesium and trying to, you know, calm their horses, whether or not there's any research to support that. Um, <laughs> And, you know, it's hard, hard to ban magnesium when it's a required nutrient. Mm -hmm. But certainly, you know, things like valerian, absolutely not allowed. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you, yeah, you do just have to kind of know. Um, and I think it's worth understanding that it's not necessarily the ingredient itself. It may be this what we call secondary metabolites that that thing is, is metabolized into. So, obviously, you know, there's, there's many, many ways that a that an ingredient gets broken down into all these little chemical components and and it may be that there's just some chemical component within that i mean think about for example you know cannabinoids in you know in you know hemp or marijuana or whatever i mean there's you know it's it's not it's this was there's just one chemical within that plant um so it may not even be the plant per se it may just be this one chemical that it produces so um yeah, definitely go to your governing body and find out. And and don't trust just because the the label on the buckets. I think it's really important to say, I think FEI and USEF and other governing bodies would all, you know, state that they do not approve supplements and feeds. Right. There are no, you know, you can't go to USEF or FEI and get them to approve your feed. That's not a, that doesn't exist. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So like if you're... Um, uh, got a product that said that the FEI approved. It's yeah, no, that's not no, a thing. No, no, and I think it's also important that just because you used it last year doesn't mean that it's okay this year. Like these do change every year. the The lists get updated, so it it's important to be at the end of the day as the owner or the rider competing on the horse. It's uh, your responsibility. To, yep. to follow to know and follow those rules there's so many rules there's so many rules we can't use a boucher anymore if it's got more than whatever it is 
Yep, yep, yep. And your your and your and your arrow, your arrow on your bid, if it has one, needs to be on the left side, pointing forward. But don't take my word for it. Although I'm pretty confident I'm not on that one. <laughs> Sometimes I know what I'm talking about. That one, I'm pretty sure I know what I'm talking about. But um, so yeah, so check check with your your governing body. Um, so I think the omega three conversation touched on this, but is there a way that you can end up over supplementing your horse with something, especially if you're using multiple products targeting or marketed for multiple issues um, or benefits and you're giving them all to your horse at the same time and maybe there's crossover ingredients between those. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, luckily most of these things are pretty benign, right? And the worst you're doing probably is just wasting your money. but, you know, I have seen diets where selenium is snuck in in funny places. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually just did a diet for um, a barrel racer who was giving a couple of airway-related products and combined her diet. I want to say I had like 40,000 IUs of vitamin D in it, which is way too high. Um and that can really start having, you know, you can start actually causing issues that you really don't want. Um, so, yes, you can. And they had just snuck in, you know, combined with the feed she was feeding. And then these two, you know, there was a joint health supplement that had vitamin D in it because vitamin D is implicated for bone health. And then it was also in this airway supplement. And all of a sudden you've got, you know, multiple sources and it had added up vitamin E is another one you know we seem to think that vitamin E is benign and the more the better and what have you and as long as you're up to you know 10,000 IUs you're safe kind of thing and and again I think we've talked about this before you need to test and really find out if that's really true because every horse's utilization of vitamin E is a little different but excess vitamin E it changes to um, it gets incorporated into cell membranes and so it can cause thinning of cell membranes it could increase your risk of bleeding into the lungs forces that are in intense work um it also has an effect on bone mineralization so again there it's not benign um so yeah some of these things you have to be a little bit a little bit careful about yeah and you mentioned selenium uh, and it comes off a lot but i think it's always worth bringing it up especially if someone hasn't listened to other episodes but but what is the risk with having too much selenium like it's actually toxic so um, you'll start seeing them, they'll start losing manes and tails falling out. Um, they'll get horizontal cracks on their feet. In really severe cases, they'll actually slough their hoof capsule off. Um, and I think uh, those of us that have been in horses for a while, do you remember those polo ponies? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. In Flor- I think it was in Florida, right? Yeah, it was they, compounded Yeah, they product. compounded selenium and injected it. And they literally gave it at their home yard and then trailered to the polo fields and they were dropping, they got off the trailer and they were like dropping dead. I mean, it was, I want to say more than 10 horses. I mean, it was yeah. shocking. Yeah. Um, and that was a miscalculation in a, in those darn grand millions. Right. Uh, right. The math matters. The math matters. <laughs> it does. Um, and very sadly killed them. So, yeah. I mean, generally, you know, the free, they're hit. On the one hand, yes, it's toxic at a much lower level. So let's say, you know, an upper tolerable safe limit is like 20 milligrams. That's where it starts to become toxic in the diet versus say, you know, if you're looking at something like zinc or copper, you've got hundreds of milligrams before it 
becomes toxic. So it's a huge difference. I'll just say, I mean, it, you have to work pretty hard to get to 20 milligrams of selenium in your diet, but it can be done because a lot of times people don't know what's in their forage. And yeah. some of our states are in regions where there is quite a lot of selenium in our forage. I mean, I know it's not where you are. No, no, <laughs> not where we are. But, you know, you have to be careful because it'll show up in like livestock salt. You know, if you're not yeah. if you're not paying attention to the label, I had a, you know, my husband picked up a bag that I had ordered online you know, from the feed store and he brought it home. And I was like, oh, wrong bag. <laughs> like, yeah, get at the, you know, so so you have to keep an eye on that. So, oh, so as far as the the risks of over supplementation, so you mentioned vitamin E, vitamin D, selenium. Are there any others that that might might get you in trouble? I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I mean, there are also potential interactions with pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. You know, between herbal things and pharmaceuticals. Yeah. Um, yeah. Having said that, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but I know they're out there. It's definitely worth talking to your vet about, uh, especially I mean, if you're watching prescriptions. Things like if you've got a horse that's on percent and you're giving it like a chase berry product as well, it's like, is that okay? I mean, you know, these are questions for your vet, as you yeah. said. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Definitely, definitely worth bringing it up. Okay. Well, that is a is a fairly basic conversation about supplements, but we, we do promise we're going to get back back to supplements because that's there's a, a lot of ground to cover. But hopefully that uh, answers some some of your your most basic questions. So now we are to the part of the episode that I like to call Michelle Ask Claire for free advice. I've been asking Claire for advice for uh, going on 10 years now. She's never sent me a bill for it, even though I've told her she can. Um, But this is my opportunity to ask her a question and hopefully she has an answer that will help you with your horses as well. So recently I got a new delivery of hay. I transitioned my horses by mixing my old hay with the new hay over the better part of a week. But my horses, all four of them, ended up uh, gassy and with loose manure. It made me nervous. I needed to go out of town the end of that week uh, and leaving them actually made me a little nervous um, that the things could go sideways and that they might need to see a vet. It worked out in the end uh, and they're doing better now. What did I do wrong in that transition? Because not everyone transitions or has the luxury to transition hay uh, the way that I did. Um, and what can I do better next time? Yeah, I mean, it happens periodically. I've certainly gone into barns, you know, big facilities where, you know, they've got the new hay load in and uh, they all get a little transient something. And then most of them get better and you've got like one or two that are left with loose manure or whatever. Um, so do you tend to get enough hay for a long period of time when you I usually hay? do mm-hmm. yeah okay yeah and and my horses had been on their previous hay for um a year and it was all from the same cutting thing I'd had yeah yeah so they're from, used to actually a very stable hay supply yes you know yes. for example in my barn um you know we get um a stack of hay probably every two to three weeks mm. uh, we don't have a lot of hay storage we have enough for a squeeze of alfalfa and a squeeze of um grass hay Bermuda, and so those are going, you know, fairly rapidly with the number of horses that we have at the facility, um, and so we're, you know, we're kind of constantly turning over. Um, whereas your guys had probably become very static and very stable in their hindgut um, environment. So certainly you did the right thing 
by transitioning slowly over multiple days. And as you alluded to, you know, many people don't have that opportunity. Um, a lot of boarding facilities is literally the bay empties and the next lot comes in and there's not, there's just not the storage space or the manpower to really facilitate a gradual chain. Um, but that is ideal if, if you can. Um, you know, something you could have done perhaps, you know, there are some, some of like the Saccharomyces cerevisiae yeast um, has been shown to help stabilize the hindguts environment. Um, so that's something that, you know, you could, going back to our supplements conversation, yeah, yeah. you know, this would be a great time to say, okay, we're going to have a pretty massive change in diet. Um, you know, what can I do to support them? And so that might be something that you, that you okay, I'm going to give them some Saccharomyces cerevisiae yeast for you know, a couple of weeks before that we do the hay transition and then, you know, for the months afterwards, because we do know that horses have an increased risk of colic for like the three weeks after you've changed their hay. Um, and I, I can imagine our listeners might be going, but surely she just bought the same kind of hay. Like, what, you know, what, why is this a massive change? I mean, you know, orchard to orchard or, you know, whatever. But obviously the chemical composition of that hay can change. Um, so it sounds like potentially um, that the hay you have now is potentially a little more rich than the hay you had before. Um, and that can cause some, you know, be more rapidly fermented in the hindgut. So you get more gas production. So the way that hay is broken down in the hindgut is the bacteria break it down. And the byproduct of that fermentation is gas. And there are special gases. They're called volatile fatty acid. And those actually get absorbed through the gut lining into the bloodstream. Um, and there are things like butyric acid, acetic acid, lactic acid, and they get used by the horse then as energy sources. Um, so that's kind of how the horse gets its energy off of, of off as a hay from the byproducts of fermentation. But obviously, if you get very rapid fermentation, you can get a lot more gas than the horse can deal with. And that's when you can end up with them being a little gassy. Um, and again, if you upset that bacterial population, if all they've been doing is sort of, you know, eating cheese and crackers for the last 12 months, and then you suddenly come along and throw steak at them, you know, they really enjoy that dinner. And then the next day they feel terrible, you know, and so it's a little bit, um, that could give you the loose manure as well, just disrupting that population. So, yeah. Um, the horse that struggled the most is my oldest one. Mm -hmm. Is there a reason that older horses might be more sensitive or... Yeah, I mean, I think we sometimes older horses' digestive tracts just don't work quite as well. They're not as, as efficient as they used to be. So possibly maybe they're just a little, you know, more sensitive to changes. I mean, think about our elderly human population, kind of similar. Um, so possibly, who knows, though, really, maybe he just has some different metabolic stuff going on <laughs> that makes him a little, you know, when his system gets swung out of kilter, it throws him for a bit more of a loop than the younger horses who have a more healthy metabolic system as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's, he's a sensitive guy. <laughs> yeah. And some of them are, right? Some yeah. of them just always have been, always are, always will be, you know, yeah. and that is, and so maybe, maybe he's, you know, just the one that gets the support. Um, you know, there are some hindgut buffer products on the market um, because part of what happens is when you do get rapid fermentation in the hindgut, um, you get more lactic acid produced and lactic acid is more acidic than say acetic acid or propionic or butyric acid. So you can make the hindgut go more acidic and that can kind of kill off the neutral pH loving bacteria, which can lead to loose manure. So there are, you know, there is a hindgut buffer on the market that helps stabilize that hindgut 
environment and you know prevents that lactic acid from making the hindgut too acidic so that's another i use that sometimes in horses when they get uh turned out on on new grass in the spring or in the fall um and for somebody like you that has you know an infrequent hay change Mm -hmm. be a good insurance policy in that situation as well so that buffer then helps make uh the gut more basic is that Yes, exactly. So what happens is, is you get a lot of lactic acid produced from if you have readily fermentable carbohydrate in the hindgut. So let's say your hay was more easily fermentable than your last one. You're going to get a lot more uh, gas production and the more simple carbohydrates get fermented uh, more readily to lactic acid. And there are lactobacillus bacteria in the hindgut whose job it is is to mop up that lactic acid. But if your lactic acid production is greater than their ability to sponge and mop up and soak up that lactic acid, you'll start to get this out of balance situation. So that hindgut buffer starts is neutralizes that lactic acid and stops it from swinging the gut to becoming too acidic and it keeps it more neutral. And I think people are pretty familiar with that concept of buffers when we talk about stomach health mm-hmm. and, and using stomach buffers. We're not so, we don't think about it so much with the hindgut, but it's the same concept. It's just in a different part of the digestive tract. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, I, it'll be another year <laughs> before we do this again. So I forget. <laughs> I know. To put it on my calendar, make a reminder. Um, but thank you. So, well, that's all the time we have for today. We hope that those listening have a better understanding about supplements and what your horse might or might not need. If you're looking for more info about supplements, like I mentioned, we do have plans to go more in depth in the future. We also have a special guest related to supplements that, that we're excited about having. So uh, we, we look forward to introducing her to you. Yeah, it's going to be fun. And as you said, there's so much more to talk about. And I think it's really interesting. I don't know that people have a really clear understanding about how supplements come to market. Mm -hmm. So I think that'll be a really interesting conversation along with getting a little bit more into the regulatory, like what can these companies say and what can't they say so that you can be a more informed consumer. You you really might be surprised what, what goes on out there. Yeah. So for our listeners, if you'd like to be part of our conversations, please send your suggestions for future topics and your equine nutrition questions to info at scoopandscale.com. You can also find Claire at clarityequine.com. And please make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you found this episode interesting, make sure you tell your friends and share it on your social media platforms. We've also started a little little newsletter and we're going to be sending out updates when we post new episodes. So you can sign up for that at scoopandscale.com and is spelled out on that scoopandscale.com so that you don't miss an episode. For the Scoop and Scale podcast, I'm Michelle Anderson. And I'm Dr. Claire Tunis. Thanks for riding along with us. 